La 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 la, Happy Thursday! It's the twenty fifth of February. I'm Todd Brinker. This is back from the brink. Aaron is taking the morning off, so you'll listen to me, or you won't. It's your option. It's your option. So, uh, as we left the radio show, we were applauding our federal government for. Uh, coming together and the politicians on both sides of the aisle instead of spitting angry looks at each other and perhaps just spitting at each other. Um, and they came together and they agreed to to uh, take a look at some strategic changes that need to be made in order to make sure that we have uh, certain sectors that provide uh, services and and gear for uh, that are based here in the United States. So we're not outsourcing things that are required for defense, for public health, for biological preparedness, information communication technology, energy transportation, and food production. And there are certain you know key pieces to that that we have maybe outsourced over the last few decades that maybe we shouldn't have. And as uh, as COVID has, has raged throughout the world this past year. We've discovered that, uh, that you know, we've been paying thing, people in China to do things for us and paying people in Taiwan and India and, you know, places around the world. But a lot of it's gone to, uh, to uh, Asia. And uh, in the course of doing that, we've discovered that, uh, you know, at some point during certain situations, they don't want to sell it to us for no amount of money. Because they got their own people to worry about. And if they're making a whole bunch of masks to protect people, they're going to give them to their own people before they sell them to us. And, you know, they're looking out for their people. Their politicians are looking out for their their people the way they should. Um, that doesn't mean that we necessarily have to accept that as a fact, though. We should maybe look at, hey, there are certain things that we need to make sure that we have uh, enough manufacturing capabilities here to continue to make SANS input from other places. And part of that also is that there are, uh, you know, when you're dealing with like um, uh, biotech and, and electronics, there are certain raw materials that are primarily from only lo- certain locations in the world. And if we can't find any of those types of materials here in our country, certain types of metals or certain types of, of um, you know, biologicals and stuff, then then maybe we should look at stockpiling and freezing and, and, and keeping some of them here so that we have a buffer, a cache of these things. So if the flow of whatever it is that we need to make the, you know, computer chips or whatever um, are available to us so that we can continue to manufacture them and that we have the manufacturing to do it here. I mean, it's horrifying to think that maybe, you know, some of our defense grid is run by computers that need chips that you can only get from one factory in China, and China has shut it down. And then what do we do? You know, we we fly our airplanes until that chip breaks, and now our airplanes can't fly because China doesn't want to give us any more of the chips. That's not a good position to be in. And so, um, you know, and, and obviously that's the extreme, but, I mean, you know, we all saw the news and, and recently went through the... Um, the 
experience, to put it mildly, the experience of having no masks initially when the COVID hit, because all of the masks that we could use were coming from China and nobody had them here. And so we saw people wearing handkerchiefs over their face, you know, and let me tell you, if you can hold it up to the light and see people through it, it's doing you no good at all. Might as well put a pair of nylons over your head like you're going to rob a bank or something. It's doing you no good. Uh, and, and, and I'm still a oh, pet peeve of mine. Man, if I see one more person walking around with a mask over their chin and not over their nose, I am going to come unhinged. You know, I'm surprised that we haven't seen, you know, more police called out for people just losing it in grocery stores going, that idiot's not wearing the mask at all. You might as well put it on your elbow. Yeah, bozo. Um, uh, if you, cover your face. All of your face holes need to be covered. Um, and people go, what about my ears? Your ears aren't a hole. They're a ditch. There's a bottom. They don't go all the way through, although some of you seem stupid enough that I could probably see light through them. Um you know, uh, wear your mask over your face. Holy moly. Um, but, you know, we shouldn't be reliant on other countries for critical infrastructure. You know, um, we are the wealthiest nation in the world. We have the highest GDP. We have, you know, we're we are creators of much wealth around the world. And the idea that we, uh, you know, somehow can't get enough face masks because the factory that we always bought them from is now making them for their own people is not shocking. It's not surprising. It's not a revelation that anybody had to stretch to predict. So maybe there are certain sectors of manufacturing that we need to keep here. Now, how does a government do that? Well, either the government says we will make them and it'll become a government-issued thing. Um, uh, and they will say, you know, we want them and we'll pay companies to make them, but we'll pay them pay for them here. And then the government stockpiles them. Or, uh, you know, you set up taxes and breaks for the companies who do manufacture in those critical areas to make it more advantageous for them to keep their production here at home than to outsource it. So there's a couple different ways to go about doing that. And that's two. I mean, there's many more than that. There's, you know, combinations of ways so you can do multiple things to, to make sure that your supply chains are, are sourced locally as opposed to sourced in foreign countries. And so um, I was happy to hear that both democratic and uh, Republican lawmakers got together and met with the president, and he has signed an executive order saying, you know, we're going to bring some of this stuff home. Now, I haven't read the specifics of that executive order, so I don't know if they've already gone through in detail what those things are or whether it's um, uh, a basic, you know, marching order saying, hey, let's we're going to do this, and, and you know, we're going to put together a bipartisan committee to determine what are the things that need to be um, deemed as critical manufacturing jobs. To bring that stuff back to the U.S. and and part of the thing, and of course, you know, Biden's you know thumping his chest and saying, "See what I did," um, is that uh, uh, you know it's it's going to create manufacturing jobs. So he's saying, "Well, this is not only going to be something that uh, is critical for us to be able to handle those extreme situations, like when a pandemic hits the, the entire planet." But also, uh, you know, it'll bring some manufacturing jobs back to the United States, which uh, 
apparently, you know, we were um, in, in 20 years ago, we were at 17 million and now we're like at 12.2 million. So we've outsourced a lot of our manufacturing to other places and people don't have those kinds of jobs anymore. They have different kinds of jobs and this will open it up. But you remember before this pandemic hit, we were at like a, almost full employment. There was not people out looking for jobs. In fact, that you, you could move from job to job and, 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 you know, make more money if you move from one place to another because there were lots of jobs to be had um you know so this will maybe be a way to also help get people back working as they come out of this pandemic because a lot of people have lost their jobs as a result of this because either the job is gone there's a lot of businesses that have shut down or um or you know they don't feel safe going back to work and so they're just not doing it um uh, you know, we hear the stories about people who are making more money on unemployment than they were making when they were working, and so they don't have, they have no incentive to go back to work. I think that those, you know, that 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 that's probably. I mean, while I have no doubt that it happened, I don't think that that's the norm. I think that a lot of people, um, you know, are honestly would rather be working than not. But um, you know, it's easy to get late, get used to being lazy and laying around the house, right? So um, I can see some mixed emotions there too. Um, you know, talking about businesses that have gone away, um, uh, here in Southern, they're based in Southern, where I guess, I guess they were based in, uh, in Northern California initially, but, uh, but, uh, all of them in Southern California and now apparently all of them everywhere are going to be shutting down and that's Fry's Electronics. Now I am a techie guy. I have been a hobbyist tech guy for many years. And so, uh, you know, when Fry's first became a thing, they opened their first store in Sunnyvale in 1985. Um, by the time they were down here in Southern California, they had opened up some stores in the, in the you know, mid to late 80s. Um, it was the thing, you know, you'd go down to Fry's and, and they would have these big sales sometimes where there'd be people wrapped around the building. And they're big buildings. I mean, these are Home Depot sized, uh, you know, uh, Costco sized buildings. And they're filled with nothing but electronic goodies you know and and they had parts and pieces hard drives and 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 resistors and diodes and and then they had refrigerators and satellite tvs and televisions and and uh and you know cameras and movie cameras and and you name it they had printers and computers and phones and fries just had you know if it ran off of electricity fries probably sold at least one of them and uh, it was like a kid in a candy store for me to go to Fry's and go wandering around, you know, and you could always get something. And then they famously had these lines to get out. They would channel everybody in one line down this aisle that was always lined with all kinds of pick it up and buy it now kind of candy and, and chips and soda. But then also like little mini flashlights and, and headphones and little tchotchkes, little chargers that plugged into your car. You'd have a little USB charger, you know, little $5 things that you could just pick up. The way the grocery stores do it, except imagine a grocery store that's, you know, 100 feet long, uh, a grocery store line, and you're walking down this one aisle that has all these little things that can, you know, catch your eye, a little no-slip map that you can put on your dashboard so you can set your phone there and it won't slide around. I mean, all kinds of little things that were, you know, five or ten bucks and you kind of go hmm i could use one of those and then you get home late and go why on earth do i have this thing you know, but uh uh fries was famous for that long checkout line 
Now, they had tons of checkout, but they would funnel everybody down this long line before you could then go and you get called to whichever checkout counter. And it was always fun because each store had its theme so that, you know, there was like uh, the one in, in Santa Ana here in Southern California had, um, uh, let's see, what was it? It was like, that one wasn't the space. There was one that was a space exploration and had a big, uh, a big like full-size mock-up of the space shuttle right in the middle of the store. And, uh, and so lots of cool stuff. Uh, you know, there was always music playing in one corner because there were stereos and car stereos and that kind of stuff going on and thumping. And, um, you know, it was just sort of a go-to place if you liked electronics and like computers and, uh, and they will, they will be missed. I don't know that there's a walk-in place like that anymore. Um, it's Best Buy is not the same at all. Best Buy is like a, a retail store that sells some of that, some of the same kinds of stuff, but it wasn't geared towards hobbyists it's not best buy is not it so these days i guess you have to buy it at amazon now um and you just you miss that experience you know it's uh it's like as much as i i like to buy things through amazon i also like to wander through some stores occasionally you know of course covid notwithstanding i think it's putting the the final nail in the coffin for a lot of stores um i hope that uh barnes and noble continues to exist I don't know how they're doing financially, but uh, the ability to wander through and pick up a book and kind of browse through it, there's just something nice and tangible about that. And yes, I buy Kindle books um, because I don't want to have a bunch of books sitting on a shelf and a lot of stuff I can read that way just fine. But uh, but it's hard to replace the, the that sense, that experience of uh, of walking down an aisle. And Fry's was literally a place where you could go get your get get your steps in for the week uh by marching around that store because it was huge and uh you know at one point in time they had a whole section of uh albums and then later cds um uh and, and cassettes so you could go buy music back when people bought music and when when that went away they kept like the the uh the vinyl section so you could still go back and look at vinyl and buy vinyl for those who wanted to do that. I know that's kind of had a resurgence in the last few years. Um, and uh, same thing with movies, you know, uh, movies have become a streaming thing, but you could still go buy, you know, DVDs and then later Blu-rays there so that you could watch your movies. And uh, and they even supported, they still had some of the old laser discs, the big 12-inch laser discs, which never caught on with the general population but for for you know enthusiasts that was the highest quality video you could get uh uh prior to like blu-ray coming out and so uh you know some people some people still had the big 12 inch video discs and uh yeah they'll be missed so uh, here's to fries i am uh terribly sorry to see them go because there's nothing quite like them anywhere else and uh uh, at least that that are available here now. Maybe we'll find some more places, or somebody will fill that gap and expand. There might be some smaller stores that are going to say, "Hey, with fries gone, we can now maybe you know make ourselves a little bit more known." We were hidden behind this thing, but they also used to have these uh, newspaper ads for people who had never seen one. They would buy a full page on an ad, and they would put 250 items on that page. <laughs> I mean, just that ad was so crammed with like little picture of something and a price underneath a little picture of something. And they would they would, uh, you know, have like sections. So you would find the section that interested you. You know, if it was like uh, vacuum cleaners, they would have vacuum cleaners on sale or refrigerators or television sets 
or computers or or computer parts or hard drives or or drones or cameras <laughs> you want to buy a DL, DL, DSLR Fry's will sell it to you because you know it runs off a of battery so therefore it's electronic um, yeah they had all that kind of stuff but uh, they are victims of the pandemic uh, I know the Fry's that's closest to me has been shut down for a while I'd driven by a couple times trying to go to see if they had opened back up at least allow people in like some stores and you've been able to go to Walmart and to um, you know, like the Sam's Club and, and Costco, they just limit the number of people that they allow in. Fry's wasn't doing that. They were shut down already. So um, so I guess I wasn't too surprised when I heard that they were gone for good. But it still makes me shed a little tear. I'm a little, a little sad. I miss that. You know, um, part of my childhood was, was marching off to Fry's too. So, um, yeah, we'll see. So something else that's in the news is uh, Biden making a move with the Postal Service. Now, I've seen several things like this, and I'm not quite sure what's going on other than it, it appears that uh, that um, he is trying to put three more people onto the there's three empty slots. and He's trying to fill those on the Postal Service's nine member board. And right now there's three Republican appointees and three Democratic appointees. So um, theoretically, with uh, if he gets those uh, three people through, that they will then have uh, six people who are Democratic appointees, and then they can basically have a vote of no confidence and remove the Postmaster General because the Postmaster General does not work directly uh, for the executive, so he can't hire or fire that person. Um, now, this is the same Postmaster General, uh, Louis DeJoy, who um, uh, was controversial during the election in terms of what he said he could or couldn't do in terms of handling um, uh, mail-in ballots. Um, by all accounts, though, everything was pretty much handled, uh, at least, well, I shouldn't say by all accounts. There are those who are debating whether it was handled or not. But from what I can see, it seems like everything was handled just fine, that they, the post office you know, grabbed ballots and delivered them to, to uh, county registrars the way they're supposed to. Um, you know, but... Uh, We'll see. We'll see how that all shakes out, whether or not he will uh, still be there and whether or not he will be removed. Uh, President of the American Postal Workers Union praised the nominees, uh, uh, noting that if DeJoy wants to keep his job, he's going to have to function in a way that keeps the support of the board. Um, You know, and I mean, that's true of any any um, postmaster general. You know, they are they serve at the behest of a board. And the board is appointed by the president. So it's sort of an indirect drive by the president. And I don't know how long people serve on the board. So um, that's that, that oversight board. Um, you know, if they cycle through, you know, how often does a president get to appoint people to the Postal Service Board? I don't know. So um, either way, we'll see. You know, it seems to me like that's pretty much just uh, a run-of-the-mill thing that happens when when uh, you know new presidents come in, they'll they'll fill positions, and that's one of the you know three of the positions that they have to fill are on the Postal Service Board. And while there's been some critique of Mr. DeJoy, um, you know whether or not he remains in his position will be determined by those board members. And you know you would think that that you would hope that they would not make political decisions, but rather make decisions based on the job that they believe that he is doing. And uh, and that he would either keep his job or be removed from his job based on the quality of the work that he does. So, um, uh, 
you know, we'll see what happens and how that all plays out. Uh, to me, that's almost a non-story. I, I, you know, it's it's like right on the border of like, do we care? Not so much. You know, it's like, OK, fine. The the postmaster general actually has uh, uh, almost nothing to do with whether I get my mail every day. So, you know, I suspect that they could have that position sit empty for for a year and I would still get my mail uh, the same way I do right now, because the people who do their jobs do their jobs every day and they don't really care what the guy who sits in that chair says or does. They just pick up their mail and deliver it. Um, You know, there was that whole confrontational thing about shutting down some mail sorting systems uh, as the election approached. And uh, I, they conflated, I think, the shutting down and repair, uh, repair because some of the stuff hadn't gone through a repair cycle when it was supposed to, that kind of thing, with, uh, with election fraud and potential election fraud and all kinds of horror, horror stories that, like I said, I think all turned out to be much ado about nothing because I think all the mail got delivered where it was supposed to be, uh, including the mail-in ballots. So, so, yeah, so what? We move on. Right. Uh, The uh, uh, House and Senate are going to be voting on the um, one point nine trillion dollar covid relief package. They are still waiting on the parliamentarian. Uh, The parliamentarian is a position that's voted on by the party in power. And that person's job is to look at all of the. Uh, rules that have been voted into the Senate since its first existence and say, according to our own rules, are we allowed to do this or that? You know, what can we do? How can we how can we use the rules to get what we want done done? Now, what they want to do is use a they being the the Democratic uh, uh, leaders of the House and Senate want to use a rule that allows them to take something that is normally a um, that re- normally requires two thirds vote. So in the Senate, that would be 60 votes um, and pass it with just a simple majority, which means that they could get a complete party line vote and be split 50 50. And then the vice president would come in and break the tie and it would go towards the Democrats. And that's what they want to do to pass this bill. Now, the rules say that the only things that you can do that with are things that have to do with the budget. They have to be budget-related. They cannot be budget-adjacent. So the debate is whether or not they can include in this package a five-year phase-in of increasing minimum wage up to, from like $7.50, where it's been for ages, up to $15. So the question is, is that a budget-related issue? Or is it budget adjacent? And some would argue that increasing the minimum wage has nothing to do with the federal budget. It has to do with individuals' budget, and it has to do with how much tax they pay on how much they make, and so it's budget adjacent. Others would say because it has to do with how much taxes they make and how much revenue the country would get in, that it is directly a budget issue. And so the parliamentarian has a heavy weight on their shoulders right now because they're the one who has to select and decide and announce, we believe this to be so and why. And, of course, both sides will argue and say, no, we've decided you're wrong and we've decided you're right. In fact, they're already doing that before the parliamentarians even said a word. So, 
um, you know, the uh, the name calling and and spitting fire at each other continues through the House and the Senate as we speak. But um, you know, I we'll see how it breaks down. I think that that uh, while I don't disagree that we've had a minimum wage that sits for a long time, I have some doubt as to whether or not there should be a minimum wage. I think that there are some while while there are some jobs that would pay less than minimum wage if you know that what our current minimum wage is uh if if we just allowed markets to do to to set wages um I think there are plenty of jobs that would pay more because right now they just go oh well that's where we start because that's the minimum wage um and a lot of states have minimum wages anyway and so um I think that more more properly lies in the purview of the state um you know that's my my feeling my my feelings on it. I know that people can argue um, back or forth either way, but apparently the minimum wage just stood at seven dollars and twenty five cents since two thousand and nine, and uh, and hasn't budged. So, you know, it, it, we do have a federal minimum wage. Maybe it shouldn't be seven dollars and twenty five cents, but I don't know that in eleven years it needs to more than double. I mean, you know, it. it we haven't, uh, you know, maybe they should tie the minimum wage to to being a a percentage of what our you know our inflation rate is, and just that way it'll go up or down based on what the inflation rate is. Each year they reset it based on a calculation. I don't know. If you're going to have one, then then maybe it should be tied to that. So so that the real dollars don't change when when the cost of you know all of the goods around you have changed based on inflation or deflation. So. You know, uh, again, I think it's better off left to the states. But if there's going to be a national one, then maybe it should be tied to something, some sort of calculation. We'll see. We'll see how that spills out. Um, I think that that doesn't properly belong in in a budget only thing. Now, in a perfect world, you'd get your two thirds majority. and You wouldn't have to go through this particular manipulation. But as it's looking more and more like in order to get it past the Senate, that specifically the Senate, that they're going to have to do this, which means that they have to limit the bill to just uh, financial issues, just just revenue issues uh, for the government, things that have to do with the budget. Now, there is another complaint that apparently um, uh, there are some things stuck in there that have nothing to do with anything else. And guess what? The two lead uh, senators, uh, the the lead senator and the lead um, uh, House person, well, actually, it's the Senate, uh, uh, yeah, have have stuffed some stuff in there. So apparently there's like, in, in the bill is $100 million to help extend San Francisco areas. Bart, well, guess who represents that area? House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And so she's sticking that in there, too. It's like, yeah, 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 it's $1.9 trillion. Nobody will notice $100 million here, $100 million there. Um, and then um, apparently uh, Schumer, uh, Chuck Schumer, uh, has included um, $1.5 million for a bridge that's in, uh, in, in New York. And so, uh, which is in the district. Oh, but that's a, a Republican seat who, whose district that's in. So, you know, I don't know. Both sides do this all the time. I don't, you know, it, if you want to get rid of that kind of stuff, then we have to go back and, and say we have to set up a, a constitutional amendment that says that the president, whoever that person is, has the right to say a line item veto, meaning that when you send me a bill, 
I can go through and say, I approve this part, but I don't approve that part. And I approve this part, but I don't approve that part. Um, and that way, then the House and the Senate can't s stick in all these little extra bits and pieces. You know, I mean, instead of being one point nine trillion, it could be one point eight trillion if we take out a bunch of the this is what they call pork. Right. The little things that get added in to, because, hey, in my in my district back home, I if I get this bridge, I can then go to all those people and say, see, I got us a new bridge and that helps your commute. So therefore, you should vote for me again because I helped you out, um, you know. The flip side of that is 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 if they have a line item veto, does do will some presidents at some point, and I have absolutely no doubt this would be the case, say, well, you know, I'll not approve the things that are from anybody from the other party because I don't want them to be able to go home and say they got anything, and I'll approve the things that my party said so that all of my people will be able to get uh, voted back in, and at some point then people just quit voting for the other party because they're not in power. And whoever gets a first jump on that, the first one to pull the trigger on, you know, being completely partisan and unethical, wins. And I think that's a bad, bad thing, too. So, um, you know, I can see the argument both ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see what happens. Um, anyway, the major piece that this $1.9 trillion COVID relief package is uh, being centered around is the idea that they would send $1,400 to all Americans uh, 2,800 a couples plus uh, uh, a chunk for, for dependent children or dependent elderly. And so, um, yeah, we'll see how it all plays out. Um, the goal is, and of course it'll come right down to it, but the goal is to have this done by mid-March because in mid-March is when some of our other um, uh, moratoriums are set to expire. And so in order to keep those from expiring i think both sides uh will will come to some come to to a, an agreement but it isn't going to happen till the 12th hour on the date you know the debt as the deadline approaches because that's the way it always works they won't do anything until until they're being threatened by people saying you know we put in special protections for covid to help people with rent and with uh with uh, unemployment and that all expires on mid-march and and we don't want to upset all of our uh, uh, voters if by, by letting that happen. So we'll all finally come to a conclusion and, and, and we'll all claim that we did a wonderful thing, uh, you know, on that day when we reach a, when we, when we finally reach an agreement. And, uh, so I have no doubt it'll, it'll get there. What form it takes and what pieces do and don't go through probably going to be closer than not to what the Democrats want because they're sitting in power right now. So, um, you know, we shall see again. You know, it's like there's a whole bunch of stuff. We talk about it. We know, you know, but we're doing a lot of supposition. It's not actually happened yet. So, uh, you know, you can suppose that, you know, yeah, we're all going to have flying cars. At some point, we shall see. There's a good way to phrase that, right? Um, will we have flying cars? I don't know. It depends. You know, if you if you say, will we have flying cars with an endless timeline? Probably. Will we have flying cars in five years? Probably not. Um, you know, I have great doubts about us having a massive number of self-driving cars in five years, knowing how difficult the problem is to solve and solve safely. Um, and and it's not even solve safely. It's solve the human aspect safely, because some of these self-driving cars already make less mistakes than human beings do. Problem is, is they still make mistakes. And unless they're darn near perfect, then they won't be able to sell it to people. 
because they're going to go, well, I'm not going to get into a machine that could kill me. I have no control. Even if you could statistically show them that getting into that machine is significantly safer than them driving it themselves, which in many cases it is already or real close to it. At the very least, it's the same. Um, but the things that it does, the the times that it fails are different than the times when you would fail. You know, I mean, Tiger Woods recently was coming down a hill at a fairly high speed, lost control of his vehicle, flipped it over and had to have emergency surgery. He's sitting in a hospital right now. He was driving that vehicle. Odds are a self-driving vehicle wouldn't have had that same accident. But that same vehicle might have misread a red light and driven out into an intersection and had a crash, which is something that humans probably wouldn't do. So, you know, they both fail. They just fail in different ways. And they, you know, e even if the the self-driving car fails at a lower rate than the human dri driving car, that's not enough. It has to not fail. It has to has to fail less often than us by a substantial margin. And it has to... Um, uh, do it in a way that we don't go, well, I would have done this. You know, it has to be such that, that mentally a human being can look at it and go, okay, that's a mistake anybody could have made. So I'll excuse the car for making the mistake because it's, I mean, it's never going to be perfect. There's always going to be some issues out there. Right. Um, you know, at least until every car on the road is self-driving and they can communicate with each other. And uh, that's the thing that I haven't heard anybody talking about with these self-driving cars is how many of them are going to be able to communicate with each other and share information back and forth so that they can then um, drive together in herds and packs and, and, and be safer that way. And it seems to me like that's a standard that all self-driving cars should aspire to. We should be creating a standard that everybody can share into and, and pull data back out of uh, real time as they're rolling down the road. Because if I've got, you know, 200 sensors on my car making sure that it doesn't crash and you've got 200 sensors on your car making sure it doesn't crash, we're both better off if there's 400 sensors. If we happen to be adjacent to each other driving around down the road, we have access to 400 sensors that will make sure that neither of us crash and, and we're both better off that way. And so there should be some sort of, um, you know, mesh network of cars that can talk to each other and share each other's information. And if there's one, you know, uh, half a mile ahead that's slowing down, then the two back behind should know that and be able to prepare to slow down and or reroute uh, based on that information. They need to talk to each other, um, you know. And then there's always that when they talk to each other, do they tell each other who's who's in the car? Because do you really want the car network tracking where you are all the time maybe not but but you know if you're uh if your car is driving you between here and vegas and it breaks down you might want it to be able to notify people and say hey bob is here or how about if you're in the car and you start to feel ill or you have a heart attack you should be able to say to the car or hit an emergency button in the car and the car should be able to immediately start driving you to emergency services um and or calling you know, out to other cars in the network to clear the way so you can get there quicker. Um, you know, so so there's some benefits that you have to balance, right? So anyhow, we'll see how that all plays out. Ha, ha, ha. As if that's sort of the call word for the day, right? We'll see. Um, 
Anyhow, I think I'm going to wrap it up for the day. Uh, you know, Aaron's not here, and I've done all kinds of suppositions about what's going on and what could happen and what should happen and what will happen. And, um, yeah, I think I've talked enough. I'm going to take a break. So uh, I hope that you enjoyed my morning ramblings here. Again, it's the 25th of February. This is episode 206 of Back from the Brink. And hopefully Erin will be back with us tomorrow, as far as I know she will be. And we'll we'll have a regular conversation tomorrow. Thanks again. Have a great day. <laughs>